turn to Exodus chapter 33 in your pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to skip uh, down to verse 15. Uh, if, you're, if you're doing the math, yes, we are jumping ahead a little bit in our chapters. We're skipping uh, over, doing a flyover of uh, the section where it's, most of it contains uh, the Ten Commandments and all that goes on uh, surrounding that. And so I'm giving that space for uh, another time when we maybe look specifically at the Ten Commandments. But this morning, Exodus chapter 33, we are in the midst of, of a series where we're looking at the life of Moses. What is his life? What is the, the things that happen to him? Teach us about a life of trust with God, a life of, of knowing him and being in relationship with him. And so this morning we're going to look at verse, uh, chapter 33. I want to jump right into this. Uh, if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. Let's hear God's word together. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. And go to the land I promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give to you your your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hittites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, and I will go with you. And I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words... They began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, You are a stiff-necked people, and if I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. And then skip down to verse 15. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Verse 18, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face you must, must not be seen. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Father God, we uh, pray for uh, hearts that are humble. We pray for hearts that are teachable. We pray for hearts that are full of faith. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, there, there's so much in this passage. I really just want to jump right in and, and describe where we're going to go or what I want to do uh, with these uh, verses here. Uh, I want to talk about this passage and, and, and key on, on the idea of God's presence with his people and maybe more specifically thinking about uh, renewal and revival. What does it mean to, to be renewed in the presence of God? What does it mean to know God's presence? How do we uh, see that more of a, as a characteristic 
of our lives as believers. And so toward that end, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about cultivating God's presence. I want to talk about missing God's presence. And then finally, I want to talk about desiring God's presence. So cultivating, missing, and desiring God's presence this morning. So first, cultivating God's presence. In the beginning of Exodus 33, God uh, says to, to Moses, these, are, these people are a stiff-necked people. And maybe our immediate question is, well, why? Uh, we get that they've been grumbling. We get that we've been complaining. If you've been tracking along or are familiar with the book of Exodus, you know that the people don't always have the best response to God and, and to their circumstances. And here, God gets more specific and calls them a, stick, a stiff-necked people. I think one thing that helps fill out why God is, is labeling them such is to go back and look at what happened in Exodus chapter 32. It's the, the case or the story that the famous golden calf that they create um, to be uh, of a divine presence in, your, in their life, if you will. Uh, the setting is this. Moses is up on the mountain and he's meeting with God where he's getting the Ten Commandments and instructions about building the sanctuary that's to, to take the place there in the wilderness. And Moses is there for not just a couple hours, but according to Exodus 24, he's up there for 40 days. Now think about who Moses is to the people. He's their leader. Uh, if they want to hear from God, they go to Moses. They want to hear, understand where God is leading them, they go to Moses. Moses goes to them and communicates God's truth to them. Moses is their, their, their leader. He's the one uh, that connects them to God, if you will, and he's gone. It, they, they, didn't, they don't know how long he's been, they don't know when he's coming back. And 40 days is a long time for them. And so maybe they hit the panic button. Uh, certainly, they're rebellious in, in their motives in building this, this false idol for worship and, and to, uh, to, to lead them and, and be um, immersing themselves into. But I think maybe part of the reason they build this idol, they build this golden calf, is because they don't know when Moses is coming back. They don't know if he's coming back at all. They've seen God demonstrate his presence, and it's overwhelming. And they think, well, maybe he's not coming back, or we don't know what's going on, so let's do this. And so they turn to Aaron. And Aaron, we read this in Exodus 32. He says, up, make us God. They say to Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now remember the Israelites and what they've experienced uh, about God these past uh, years. God has answered their prayers. God delivers from slavery. God says, okay, let's, let's do that. Uh, God says, uh, they say to God, the Egyptians are coming at us. They're attacking us. It's, it, we're going to die God says, okay, I'll part the Red Sea. You escape, and he destroys uh, this, this army of chariots that are pursuing them. God, we have no food to eat. Okay, here's manna. God, we have no water to drink. Okay, here's water from a rock. Time after time after time after time, God provides for them in the midst of, of their need. And now what? They create this golden calf. If there is a top ten list of backsliding stories in the, new, in the Bible, this has to be 
uh, certainly on that list. It may be a, a big contender for, for number one. Uh, how, in the face of all the ways that God has, has worked and blessed and shown his power, shown his care, shown his, his forgiveness of them, shown his grace, could they create and do such a thing? And so the question for us is, for us is what do we learn from this? Well, certainly I think it teaches us that we too are capable of backsliding, if you will. Israelites, are, they, they fail to remember who God is. They fail to remember all the things that he'd done for them. And certainly they may go in their, their mental file cabinet and remember those things. But for whatever reason, it lost traction in their hearts and their lives in a functional way. Where they felt like they could turn away from that and they had to do something themselves to create something on their own. And we are just as capable of doing the same thing. Some of us here in this room can remember that the moment when you were converted, when you believed the gospel for the first time, and that's a sweet memory to you, but it doesn't take long to forget that and turn our backs on God. Some of you can remember moments in your life where God has answered your prayer. And not just, I need a good parking spot, but like you were desperate for something uh, to really change, needing a wisdom, needing uh, an open door, needing something that God provided for you. Some of you can remember seasons in your life where God, you look back and you, you think, God got me through that. I did not have the strength to endure that, uh, to recover from that, and God brought me through that. And yet, we're prone to backslide. Yet, we're prone to, to be idle. We're, we're prone to, to back away from him and move uh, ourselves back from him. The moment we stop paying attention to who God is and what he's doing in our lives is when we begin to move away from him. The moment we fail to, to remember, the moment we fail to, to praise, the moment we fail to trust, the moment we fail to, to recognize, that's the moment when we're beginning to slide away from him and to move away from him. That's the moment when the fire begins to dwindle. In our old house, we had a, uh, a fire pit. And by fire pit, I mean not so much a pit, but this giant uh, metal bowl that we could put a bunch of logs in and, and have an, a fire. And we had this thing set up on our, our patio outside. And one night we said, okay, let's, it was kind of cold out. It was like sweatshirt cold. And we got out there and we put a bunch of logs in there. And uh, we got some hot dogs on some sticks. And we had some hot dogs. We made some s'mores. That night it was great. But that fire kept on going. As long as we put logs in that fire and paid attention to it, it was going to create more and more heat uh, for us. We were good to go. We were enjoying all the benefits of that the more as we kept up the logs in that fire, and that's how we got that heat. But inside our houses, we know that's different. Uh, heat and maintaining heat in our houses is, is different there. All we have to do is just set the thermostat. And so as long as that thermostat's set on 70 degrees, uh, it's going to give us a, a room temperature of 70 degrees. We don't have to do anything. We can be idle. We just have to ignore it. We just every once in a while go by there and make sure it's on and, and things are good to go. You just kind of coast along with it. So often in, in our spiritual lives, if we treat our spiritual lives as a thermostat uh, and coast along and we just know that that thing is set, uh, then we're going to move away from the Lord. Then you're going to slide away from him. It's going to be easier to, uh, to not put your faith and trust in him. But when we look at our walk with the Lord as more of a fire pit, where we've got to feed it with logs so it keeps burning, so we keep moving, and God keeps moving in our lives, that's when we're going to see ourselves be more active 
and growing and engaged. And so to walk with the Lord and, to, and, and protect ourselves from backslides and know that we can't be idle, but we've got to engage him. We've got to move towards him. It, sometimes it looks like praise. Sometimes it looks like reading the Bible. Sometimes it looks like confession. Sometimes it looks like embracing an awkward situation, trusting in his, his uh, promises in the midst of that. But the more we're throwing those logs in the fire, so to speak, the more we're going to move towards him and know that his grace and reality in our lives. There's something else about God's presence, and that's missing God's presence. And it's the second thing I wanted to highlight this morning. And it takes place in the beginning of ver- in the first half of chapter 33. In verse 1, uh, we read, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, Israelites, you're going to the promised lands, in other words. And then in verse 2, I will send an angel before you. God says, I'm not going with you, but I'm going to send an angel before you. And we read the reason why in verse 3 is because if I go with you, then I'm likely to consume you uh, along the way. And then verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, it says, they mourned and no one put on any ornaments. Now here is, is God communicating to Moses, you're going to get that great place to live. You're going to go into the promised land. It's just that I'm not going with you. I'm going to send an angel in my place. And he tells, the, and he communicates to the Israelites at the, their need to mourn. They take off all the, their ornaments. In the ancient Near East, what they were doing was saying, my outward re- appearance is supposed to reflect what's going on in my heart. And so if I'm wearing, you know, fun, kind of nice clothes and accessories and appearance, then it doesn't look like you're mourning. But God says, take all that stuff off because I need you to mourn. And it's like the, the, the weight of everything that's going on in their lives is kind of sobering them. All the sin they've committed in the past, the grumbling, the complaining, the lack of faith, the lack of diligence, certainly the, the creating of this golden calf and, 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 and being uh, mistrustful and unfaithful regarding all of God's promises and the reality of him in their lives in this special way. He's, he's leading them around uh, this wilderness. He's giving them food to eat every day. They have this reminder of God's presence in their lives, and it's like they're sober to the, the reality of their sin and everything that's happened to them now. What do we learn from this? I don't think this is remorse that we're seeing with the Israelites. Their mourning, I don't think, is, is remorse. Remorse is when you've been found out or you realize how you've messed up in a certain area. And you say, that was bad. I shouldn't have done that. I regret doing that. And you think, well, these are the consequences because of that mistake. And you just kind of live with it. And you kind of move on. And life just kind of goes from there. But repentance is so much different than that. Repentance in its core says, I've offended God, and I want that relationship back. I've hurt God, I've broken his commandments, I've been disobedient, and I want his presence back in my life. Repentance is certainly a confession, but repentance is saying, I'm going to do the things that need to be changed in order to uh, get that relationship back, to get the presence of God back in my life. And that's what the Israelites are feeling that this need for God's presence back in their life. It's like they're hearing that they're going to go to the promised land. They're going to get everything uh, that they 
may want. They're going to get the gift, in other words. God's going to take them out. He's going to get this land flowing with milk and honey. He's going to get uh, everything that they've promised, has been promised to them, but they're not going to get God, and they mourn over that. In other words, they're saying, it's great that we get all these good things, all this good things going to happen to us, but at the end of the day, I want God. I want the presence of God in my life. I want to know him. And think about this maybe from the perspective of the Old Testament, how we see this lived out in the, Old, in the New Testament. Excuse me. Think about the Apostle Paul. Uh, you talk about his life. Professionally, he's had a very successful life. Planted churches. I mean, anybody who's written a lot of what we read in the New Testament, that's, that's a pretty good professional life as, as a minister, as a, as a missionary, as a pastor. That's, that's a pretty good record that he's got. But when you get to Philippians chapter 3, he says something along the lines of, I count everything as loss. All the success I've had is nothing compared to knowing Christ, compared to knowing him. In other words, it's great that I've gotten all these gifts and I've been successful in ministry and had all these rich blessings. But what drives me forward is to know him. I want more of him. I want more of the reality of him in my life. I want to know him in a stronger and a deeper level. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Revival, which is a lot of this content that we're seeing here this morning, has some straightforward questions uh, with this passage in mind. He says uh, to us, or he asks, he says, I don't want to ask you whether you're living a good life. Okay? I don't want to ask you how often you're reading the Bible. I don't want to ask you uh, if you're happy with your circumstances. I don't want to ask you how often you pray or how many verses you have memorized. I'm not asking you how, oft, how active you are in the church and in, in Christian ministry along those lines. But what I want to ask you is this. Do you know God? Is he with you? Is he in your life? Are you knowing him? Or are you idle? Are you passive? Are you going through the motions is God distant from you? Do you have a personal relationship with God and it's something that's ongoing and is central to all that you are and all that you do? If that's something you struggle with, this last point I think will have some, some uh, encouragement, desiring God's presence. Now Moses hears this, this news that God's not going to go with them. The angel of the Lord is going to go with them instead and he goes to God in prayer and we see him reasoning with God starting in verse 16. And he says, if, if you're not going to go with us, basically, the nations are not going to know your glory. He's reasoning out that, that what makes us, your people, so special is your glory, is with your power, with us. If you don't go with us to this new place, you're not going to make us distinct. You're not going to make us special because you are not going to be with us. And of course, in verse 17, God says, okay, I'll, I'll go with you because you have... You have, there's a favor that you have with me. And then Moses seemingly, it feels like, takes it a step further, starting in verse 18, when he asks, God, I want to see your glory. Now, part of this, this asking for God's glory is a sense of Moses wanting some, some deeper assurance. We're about to embark on this process of going into this place with these and, and having to do these specific things. God, I need assurance. I want some assurance that you're going to with me. So show me your glory. Show me more of, of the reality of who you are. And God says, okay. And he instructs him to, to stand here on this rock. 
in, in some shape or way, God's glory is going to pass by. God's, the, his goodness and his essence is going to be seen and experienced by Moses. And Moses gets to see what, what he just, what's described in the passage as God's back. Now, Moses experienced some things about God pretty powerfully. The unburning bush, that, that captured Moses' attention, and he had to hear what was being communicated there. Um, when you're able to, able to rattle off ten plagues, like Moses did for a period of chapters, that's a pretty big deal in terms of demis- being, uh, seeing God's presence. The parting of the Red Sea, that's a big deal. Uh, all these in individual ways, that water from a rock, the manna from heaven, God is, Moses experienced the presence of God, but this in, in, some, sh- in some shape or some form is, is something different. In fact, if you did a, a survey uh, of the Bible and you look at other individuals who have had this experience of God where they've seen God in a way that, that is not maybe normally evident in the life of all of his uh, all other believers, you think about Abraham, you think about Jacob, you think about Job at the end of the, the book of Job. Uh, you think about Isaiah, uh, the holy, holy, holy are you, and he's, he just feels condemned in that m- moment of seeing God. You think about Peter, you think about Paul, you think about John. There's this list that we have of individuals that have experienced God and, and seen his glory, so to speak, in some shape or form. But I want to read you an example of somebody that's not in the Bible, that's been used by God mightily in his experience of God. It comes from uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor theologian in the 1800s, and this is what he writes in one of his works. It's like a, a feels like a journal entry in his spiritual life. It goes like this. Once I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737 to walk for divine contemplation in prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condensation. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of that time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. And then Edwards goes on to say this, to trust him, to look upon him, to serve and to follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity, I have several other times had views very much of the same nature in which have had the same effect. Now, you may be asking, you hear that, that this one man's experience of God on this, on this occasion, you think that's, that's great, that's all well and good, but how do I experience God in my life? How do I see him passing by into, in my life and in my world? Well, think about God's presence passing by in your life, and when you know he's passing by in your life like this, when you're reading the Bible, and you're living the Christian life, and there are certain aspects of Christianity take on a, a deeper weight and a deeper um, a value in your life. You're seeing some kind of truth about the, who God is and his promises, and it has new traction, new weight, and it's giving you a new experience of God, if you will. For example, you know his wisdom is passing by when your worry melts away. In other words, you're confronted with God's grace and God's power and God's truth, and all the worries that you have about some situation or about the future, it just melts away. It just loses its power in your life. His holiness is passing by when spiritual indifference falls away. 
His holiness in the sense of you've seen his greatness, his beauty, his, his power, his majesty, and all of the things that would, the, the, the idleness, the, the distance that you feel, the dullness, it just melts away because he's just so captivating. His mercy passes by, and when his mercy passes by, you know it because your guilt and shame is melting away. The reality of his forgiveness and his grace, his kindness, just alleviates all the guilt, all the shame that we feel. We know that we're so accepted by him. We're so loved by him. And any kind of grace and any kind of guilt just fades away. Let me close with this thought. And the thought is really not a thought, but it's, it's a question. As you look at your Christian life, do you know anything about the desire for more and more of the glory of God? As you think about your life as a Christian, is there a drive there to know more of the glory of God? You think about Moses. He's got his answer to prayer. God, you said you're going to go with us. We're not getting an angel, but you're going to go with us as we go forth. And you're giving us this gift of this place that's before us in the form of this promised land. But Moses says, you know, that's great, but I want to see your glory. I want to see more of the reality of you in my life. One of the, the biggest dangers, I think, for us as, as believers is to think that we can be idle. Is to think that we can be passive. I put my faith and trust in Christ. I believe the Bible. I'm plugged into a church somehow. And I can just coast. I'm just waiting for heaven. Just waiting for that reality to come my way. And the moment we start believing that is the moment we start moving back from God and moving away from him. Because it's not how the scriptures talk about a life of trust and walk with God. In Psalm 42, we read this, and I'll close after I read this. David says, As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Would you pray with me? Father God, we confess just that we, our struggle with unbelief, our struggle with uh, leaning into our own resources, our struggle with thinking that we can get by, our struggle thinking that if we just had this comfort or that comfort, that'll be enough. And we fail to see your greatness. We fail to, to be captivated by your glory. We fail to believe your promises are really true. We fail to believe that you are a God that can give us great joy and great contentment and great strength and great power. We fail to look at you as our fortress. We fail to look at you as our rock. Father God, would you burden us with the desire to see your glory, to see your greatness, and to know all your excellent things that you have done. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.